1: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, June 12th. On today's show, we'll talk about the electric scooters that are suddenly wreaking havoc on city streets and why Silicon Valley venture capitalists are swooning over them. We'll discuss the layoffs at Tesla and what they might mean for that company and its workers. Then I'll be joined by journalist Sarah Kessler of Quartz. Her new book is called Gigged, The End of the Job and the Future of Work. It looks at the so-called gig economy from the human side. She talks to people around the country who are trying to make ends meet by working for services like Uber Amazon Turk, and TaskRabbit. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw online this week. All right, as you may have noticed, my co-host April Glazer is out this week, but we have a special guest co-host. I'm joined from Slate Studios in New York by Maya Kossoff, tech writer for Vanity Fair. Hey, Maya, thanks for joining us.
2: Of course, hey, well, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, I've followed your work for a long time, so I'm glad to get a chance to talk tech with you today, Uh, and I I wanted to start with a story that you wrote recently about the electric scooter company Bird, and I'm going to go look at the headline here of what you wrote. This was maybe like two weeks ago, and it was your, your piece in Vanity Fair, and it was trying to explain how it could be possible that this electric scooter company nobody had heard of a few months earlier was suddenly... Seeking to raise money at a valuation of a billion dollars, and so you you made this like game ex- attempt to sort of explain like what are people thinking here, and now, two weeks later, we get word this week that it is seeking to raise more money at a valuation of two billion dollars <laughs> so bird is is definitely worth twice as much uh, today as it was two weeks ago, right that's a totally oh, legitimate for sure. <laughs> yeah.
2: Absolutely. Um, It reminds me a lot of like, it it harkens back to like 2014, 2015, when any company could kind of go out and raise, uh, you know, $100 million at a billion dollar valuation. We went from having like a handful of of billion dollar unicorn companies to having, what, like 140 of them um, in the span of maybe like 18 months. Uh, And this, there was a a period of calm and quiet for a while, but Bird certainly harkens back to like the Uber fundraising days of, of 2014.
1: Yeah, why are people so excited about these things? I mean, all right, so so I actually didn't think we had them down here on the Central Coast and in Santa Barbara, but I was wrong. I looked up today, and in the local news... I, we, apparently, they just showed up here, there was a, a different company called Lime that tried to launch the electric scooters here, and they didn't get any permissions or anything from the city in true Silicon Valley startup style, and so the police went around impounding them and they impounded like 150 of the 200 scooters on the first day, and now the city of Santa Barbara is trying to figure out what to allow and what not to allow, but what is the excitement? like? Why, why are these such a craze in, in some cities?
2: You know, it's so funny because electric scooters have existed on sidewalks and on streets for for years, right? Like this isn't new. It's the fact that they're monetizing it and making it a business that's that's new. Like you could you could walk down the street in Flatiron in New York City and see, you know, any tech bro like on a scooter in in, you know, five years ago. Um, but but the fact that uh, it kind of reminds me of, of the Chinese bike-sharing startups that took over at China about a year or two ago. And uh, that ended kind of disastrously. There were some good exits, but uh, the big problem there was oversupply. And um, I, in some ways... Uh, the rise of companies like bird and lime kind of reminds me of that a little bit uh, you suddenly have scooters strewn across the sidewalks in San Francisco you have um you know uh, cities impounding scooters you, I think you saw that not only in Santa barbara but uh, in Denver and in Nashville as well recently um and you know like you said uh, in, in with the very same playbook that uber and lyft used which is not surprising by the way because uh, Bird is founded by a former Lyft and Uber executive, uh, Travis VanderZanden, is I believe his name. Oh, good, another um, Travis. We you need know, it's Travis's
1: yeah. to disrupt transportation, don't we?
2: <laughs> it, I think that that's like the curse, right? Like if you're a Travis and you live in Silicon Valley and you find yourself there, uh, you have to disrupt some sort of transportation market. It's the rule. That is best of all, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, you they use the same playbook where it's like, let's not wait to be regulated. Let's kind of evince ourselves like in these cities. Let's put ourselves here and let's wait to see what regulators and cities say. And we'll build up a big user base in the meantime. That way, when we do have to fight regulators, we have this built-in fan base that can kind of go to bat for us.
1: It's so sad that that, that, that works, but apparently it does. You just flood the zone until they've been normalized and then you force the 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 lawmakers to play catch up. Um, so, but just to go back to basics for a second. So, these are these are electric scooters, and the idea behind most of these startups is not that you buy them at Kmart, because buying things and owning them is, is tired. And what is <laughs> wired is to rent these, these scooters and to get them on demand via your app on your phone, right? So, you can just, what you're like walking around San Francisco... Or maybe not San Francisco anymore because did they get kicked out of San Francisco? They
2: Yeah, they've been temporarily banned from San Francisco and the city's making companies apply for permits for them. So you can't do it in San Francisco right now, but you could say in D.C. you're walking down the street and you want to uh, hop a ride on uh, on a bird scooter for some reason. And you open up the bird app on your phone and you can see uh, what scooters have been you know left around in the area that you're in and you can go uh, use the app to unlock it. You You kind of walk up to it and you use the app to unlock it and then you pay Per minute and per mile, so um, you you can go like a few miles on a scooter, and it costs less than uh, taking an Uber or a Lyft or a cab would necessarily, and it'll get you there faster. That's kind of the that's kind of the pros scooter pitch.
1: And is there like an environmental? Is there like a green pitch here too? Because I've seen a couple of the, the companies trying to to make that pitch once they get cracked down on by local authorities they're saying look this is a this is a green form of transportation we're making your city more walkable you know maybe people will go without be more likely to go without cars if they can hop a scooter to the train station or the bus stop or to work or that kind of thing do you buy that
2: uh not yet i think it's still <laughs> so new that there is it's hard to be able to really make that cogent argument i feel like uh, maybe we revisit this in a year and we'd see whether or not Bird and Lime have really had um, a tangible impact on the way that people get around cities and and kind of move around. But uh, it's still so new that, yes, of course, you can say that you know we're we're getting people out of cars and we're getting people to kind of uh, use their feet to get around. Uh, But it's you know we're only a few months into this experiment so far,
1: and already Bird is worth two billion dollars. Why do (laughs) why do they annoy people so much? I, I I've heard that it's partly because. I guess the fact that they lock automatically and they can only be unlocked by the app means you don't have to worry about putting them on a a rack or whatever. And so people just leave these like strewn across the sidewalk or the street. I know that that was why I think that was the logic that Santa Barbara used to, to, to impound all these things
2: yeah and I I covered the scooters when they first made their way to San Francisco um, a couple months ago and there was a lot of annoyance from even people working in tech uh, who you think would be the last people annoyed by these like uh these like two-wheeled monstrosities on the sidewalk but um the the main I mean the main annoyance factor is as you said you can kind of leave them wherever which is also the beauty of them to to people who like them is that you can then find them and pick them up and start using them whenever you want to but one problem is that um, often what happens when people discover a scooter on the sidewalk using the app is that it's out of juice like the battery' is empty so you can't you can't necessarily hop on it and, and ride away um, and I, there was a really great piece in the Atlantic that Taylor Lorenz wrote I think a month ago um, about this whole economy that has kind of cropped up of people who um, will go collect dead birds scooters on the sidewalk <laughs> and um, and charge them and then return them to the company and then the company pays them money for doing that so I think that Taylor talked to a teen who was Making like six hundred dollars a night, uh, you know, picking up dead scooters on the sidewalk, and, and then uh, giving the fully charged ones back to the company at the end of the day. So that's kind of the annoyance factor, I think. I think also they're so obviously dorky. Um, they they're symbols of this like tech elitism that's fully penetrated, you know, Silicon Valley and the rest of of the country. So it's like a very obvious symbol of of a tech sentiment, if you will.
1: So it's like the, the Google Glass of transportation, or maybe if it catches on, it's the AirPods <laughs> of, of transportation.
2: Yeah, exactly. It is, it is like an equally unsexy Google Glass that you ride on a sidewalk or in a bike lane.
1: So let's move on to a, a less happy transportation story that just broke today. That, that's Tuesday. And that is that Tesla, the electric car juggernaut, has laid off 9% of its workforce um, I don't have exact uh, numbers on the headcount, but it's their, their total headcount is upwards of 30,000. So this is more than 3,000 people who were laid off today. CEO Elon Musk announced this in a tweet. It's not totally clear yet which sections of the company are most affected. One uh, that you might not think of uh, is the sales reps who had been Working from Home Depot's, where they were selling Solar City solar panels, because Solar Solar City is now owned by Tesla. But I don't know exactly who's involved. It comes at a really interesting time for Tesla, and there's a lot to unpack here. But what was your what was your reaction here? What was your first takeaway?
2: I guess my first thought was, well, what happens to the Model Three now? Like, where is where does production stand with that? How much longer are we going to be delayed in getting these cars to market? Um, how does this affect you know Musk's targets moving forward? Um, And then also, I feel like this comes at a really interesting time for Elon Musk, too, because he's been in the news a lot recently, just for mouthing off on Twitter a lot, getting into fights with reporters, dating, dating, dating grimes. (laughs) Um, So I I have to wonder, I mean, it was it's a moment when I think he's been under increasing scrutiny from the press and even from just random people who might not have ever thought about him as like a personality otherwise. Um, So I I, I kind of wonder, you know, how this is all going to play out for Him and and also for for the vehicles that he 's supposed to be making and, and producing
1: yeah, so I did email Tesla um, and th- I was trying to get a little more clarification on on who exactly is being laid off, and they told me that the that the people laid off are not production associates, which I assume means the people who are actually on the assembly line and that might make sense they're they 're the ones who I believe are trying to organize and, and form a union right now, and there 's actually there's actually a trial or a hearing going on uh, at the National Labor Relations Board right now where Tesla has been Accused of union busting, um, but here I guess they're they're looking to cut expenses elsewhere. The company assured me that this is not going to affect the production schedule for the Model Three. They they say that um, you know uh, they're quite confident and still achieving their goals. But it just you know they've been living on this on this edge. I mean Elon Musk is permanently doing this high wire act where he's like if he tips one way he tips into like legend and and greatness and changing the world and if he tips the other way he tips into bankrupt bankruptcy and ignominy and and uh, disgrace so I where, where do you see which way do you see him tipping
2: I don't know I mean I he's he's been able to walk this walk for a long time and I think um I think a credulous press helps him do that. I think uh I mean the fact that anything he tweets becomes a news article on half a dozen websites um is is kind of testament to that fact so i to some capacity I think he's able and Tesla's able to spin a lot of news that might otherwise be bad news as kind of neutral news or maybe not good news, but um they're able to kind of tamp down on on really negative coverage um but so I, I don't I don't see this ending disastrously for him. I think um, his investors are, have all the patience in the world. And even when he uh, mistreats analysts on on earnings calls, like we saw during the last one um, a month or two ago, they seem pretty forgiving of him overall. So I don't know if their if their patience really has like an endpoint or if it ever really runs out.
1: Yeah, it turns out that it turns out that, that investors don't mind eating some poop if it makes them money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the thing that I that I come back to is that the cars are amazing. I mean, at least I haven't tried the Model Three yet. But um, I was a Tesla skeptic at the outset, and I wrote a negative story. And then they were like, "Hey, why don't you come drive one? Why don't you come try one before you trash it again?" And I drove it, and it was the most amazing driving experience I've ever had. And so that's why they inspire this crazy devotion, um, you know, from their from their customers, I guess. And it, it it does buy Musk more leeway than than he might otherwise have.
2: Mm -hmm, Definitely. I also wonder uh, what the union drive effort, uh, what comes of that after all of these layoffs? Um, Obviously, it's not these layoffs aren't affecting production people, but um, you have to wonder if maybe this inspires people to want to unionize, and whether or not uh, Musk would ever recognize some sort of union effort.
1: That's a great point. I hadn't even I hadn't even thought about that. But yeah, layoffs can catalyze uh, a union drive sometimes because everybody else gets scared and, and says, wow, I really do need this protection, even if they were even if they were skeptical before. Um, Max Jacobs, our producer, has just let me know that there was some breaking news. Uh, The AT&T Time Warner uh, merger, uh, which we've talked about on the show before, has just been approved. So the fallout from that merger is definitely something we'll touch on on next week's show. Um, Also, in April's honor, since I'm sure she would be uh, certain to mention if she were on today, I should note that net neutrality officially died this week. She's been covering that as aggressively as ever, and you can read her piece, uh, Day One of a Worse Internet, uh, on our site, Slate.com. All right, that'll do it for our news segment, but we'll have Maya back on at the end of the show for Don't Close My Tabs. First, time for a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have our interview with journalist Sarah Kessler about her new book, The End of the Job and the Future of Work.
0: Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI.
1: Our guest today is Sarah Kessler. She is the deputy editor of Quartz at Work. Previously, she covered the gig economy as a senior writer at Fast Company and managed startup coverage at Mashable. Her new book is called Gigged The End of the Job and the Future of Work. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. What is the gig economy? What is gig work? And how is it different from from other kinds of work?
3: So that's a great question. And not everybody agrees on the answer. Um, Some people, when they talk about the gig economy, they're only talking about startups like Uber, where you press a button and somebody comes and does something for you. Um, Some people are talking about all freelancers. And some people talk about the gig economy as kind of part of this bigger trend in all sorts of different ways that people work other than nine-to-five traditional jobs.
1: Okay. And so the gig economy, at least the narrative, is that this has been growing rapidly, maybe over the past five years or so, as Uber and Lyft have entered the mainstream. You've got companies like Instacart and TaskRabbit. You have Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Um, But I saw a report recently in the New York Times that questioned that. It said maybe the uh, part of the economy in which people are not working as full-time employees actually hasn't grown in the past 10 years. What did you make of that uh, report that came out? I believe that was data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Is the gig economy actually growing as fast as we've been told?
3: So it's interesting because I actually started um, kind of working on this back in 2011 when I was being pitched this narrative of, you know, oh gosh, we like have this app. And there were there were tons of startups pitching this. Um, you're going to press a button and you're going to be able to work for whoever you want, whenever you want. Um, you know, we were still recovering from the recession at that point, but then it was over, you know, unemployment was over because we had these apps. And so a lot of kind of the book and my reporting on the gig economy has kind of been pushing back on this narrative that, this is the beginning of the future work and all of our problems are over. So it's kind of been interesting because for the last several years, they haven't, the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics hasn't released data on this since 2005. Um, but there have been, you know, numerous private studies or studies from the Federal Reserve and the Government Accountability Office um, that have said that this is kind of, this is growing. It's never been this is the only work that people are doing. But then what's been interesting is now there's this almost overcorrection where the narrative is like, the gig economy doesn't exist and it's not important at all, Um, which there's still 10 million people working this way, which to put that into context, I think 12 million people in the United States work in manufacturing. There are 3 million public school teachers in the United States. So it's a big group of people that exist and 7% of the workforce. Um, The other thing that I think is that um, data has shown previously that, like, Uber is not a huge part of the workforce. Uh, A couple years ago, there was a study that suggested it was 0.5 percent. In my book, I called it a rounding error. So the, the idea that this has totally replaced work You know, it shouldn't have been a surprise that that wasn't the case. What I think is interesting and important to think about is how these companies have demonstrated the possibilities for arranging work in new ways and the consequences
1: of that. What are some other examples of gig economy work that you explored in your book that might not be the first to jump to people's mind?
3: So I think that um, a lot of the ways that people use the gig economy was to talk about other work arrangements that are share problems like having disadvantages when it comes to benefits or labor rights or worker's voice. Um, and some of those are, for instance, I uh, followed this guy who took phone calls for Sears in his um, trailer home apartment in rural Arkansas about like broken air conditioners. And he was, in fact, a independent contractor working for a small business that had a contract with a call center that had a contract with Sears. So he had, you know, when you call him, you think he works for Sears, but he has no, you know, relationship whatsoever with Sears or anyone who works at Sears. And so there's this kind of process of kind of dissolving of the direct employment um, relationship, which the gig economy is not, you know, the whole story when it comes to that, but it is an example. And it's one that Politicians, I think, especially used to talk about this bigger trend.
1: What did you find in terms of was there a pattern in in the people that you spent time with as to who seemed to benefit from these opportunities or what what sorts of people were positioned to take advantage of these opportunities versus the sort of people for whom they either just replaced um, you know other work that was that was equally unsatisfying or actually left them somehow worse off than they might have been otherwise?
3: Yeah. And I think that the split is probably pretty obvious. You know, I followed a computer programmer who worked in New York who was bored of his job, and he quit and joined this app that routed him programming jobs. Um, before he did that, he had saved a year's worth of living expenses. Uh, he purchased insurance and hired an accountant to make sure he was setting aside enough money in his taxes, uh, made $12,000 his first month, you know, never been happier. Um, If he got called to jury duty and couldn't work, you know, it wasn't a big deal. He just kind of did more work next week and used his savings to buy groceries. Um, So the loss of kind of, you know, if you're working as an independent contractor, you don't have access to things like unemployment insurance or sick leave or, you know, any possibility that your employer is providing you health insurance. Uh, You probably don't know what kind of work you might get next week. Um, That's a lot bigger problem if you don't have a year's worth of savings. And so even kind of people who um, may have enjoyed working this way and enjoyed the flexibility and independence kind of had this idea in the back of their head, like, oh, this will work, like, unless something goes wrong, like, or uh, unless I want to have kids, you know, as long as I don't want to retire, which is a lot of a different story. And I think that that's important because um, if you are Somebody who has highly in demand creative skills or professional skills, you might be able to not think of the loss of kind of that safety net and social insurance as a big deal. But if you don't have those things, it really is a much bigger deal.
1: Right. So there are some people who are who are doing the the proverbial side hustle. Uh, and and for them maybe it works really well. Um, I living out here in Goleta, California. I have Uber drivers who are uh, retired, and they're and they're a lot of times they're way better off uh, financially than I am. They have million dollar homes, but they were just lonely and they wanted something to do during the day. Uh, but as far as the supposed promise of the gig economy for providing work to people who don't otherwise have it, it sounds like you didn't see a, a lot of hope in that regard. I mean, you didn't you didn't see this necessarily as a solution for for folks who are otherwise out of work?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, kind of the nonprofit that I followed is a great example of this. Um, They kind of heard this pitch about, you know, press a button and get to work. And they went to Arkansas, um, where in this town where 40% of people live in poverty, and there aren't a lot of good job opportunities and said, okay, like, there aren't good opportunities here, but if we teach you how to use this online freelance program, you can access opportunity anywhere. And the problem, they kind of quickly discovered, is that the same things are working against you when you're competing for online jobs as they are when you're competing for offline jobs. And those are not a matter of just kind of plugging into a interface. You know, there's differences in education and experience and expectations. And there's, you know, racism when you're in the workplace in the physical world. And there's racism online. I mean if you think about it, that we should have all, and the media narrative should have immediately questioned that an app can solve poverty and unemployment. That's just It's just way more complicated than that.
1: Did you come away from this thinking that there really are uh, some other ways? Maybe maybe the gig economy isn't solving unemployment, but are there other things that it is doing that you think offer a real promise for the future?
3: Yeah. Um, I think that You know, the ways in which it works well for the programmers would also be ways that it could work really well for everybody. You know, kind of our idea of a full-time job we conceived at a time when we thought an ideal family would include a woman who stayed at home all day taking care of the children in the house. And to the extent that that was ever typical, it is less so typical today. And so you have these people trying to juggle so much with two full-time you know, careers that are all scheduled during the same hours. And this could really be a way to help with that. Or um, you have people living much longer than they used to. um, And not only that, but living healthy lives longer than they used to. And so the idea of, you know, a 60-year career is something that is actually, that that might happen. And the idea that we're all going to go to the office from 9 to 5 for 60 years, this also seems less than ideal. And so, you know, maybe that this could somehow help with that. And then I also think uh, what is kind of important about this story was the, the reason that I thought it was interesting is that it, in the process, kind of demonstrated all of these problems with the larger economy and who it works for and who it doesn't and weaknesses in the way that we support workers in general. And so there are a lot of problems that came up with the gig economy and a lot of solutions that were proposed for it that if we actually followed through with some of those solutions would benefit not only Uber drivers, but like a much bigger swath of the, of the workforce.
1: So what's an example of one of those solutions that could help?
3: So for instance... Uh, portable benefits, which is this idea that, like your health insurance, shouldn't be attached to your job. You should be able to, as an individual, have a way to buy health insurance. Or your employers, if you work for five different places, should be able to all contribute. If we're going to keep it as kind of a, a employer funded thing, I think that that that's probably the main one. We're the only kind of developed country that attaches the whole social safety net to a job and there's a lot of problems that that causes not just for not just for people working in the gig economy
1: Another thing I wanted to ask you about that I've seen a lot of argument about uh, is whether you can make a decent wage um, working gig economy jobs, whether it's, you know, there's there's arguments about whether you can make ends meet working full-time as an Uber driver or how many hours you'd have to drive per day. Um, I, I imagine similar arguments, you know, if you're... Uh, an Instacart shopper or or uh, whatever else. What did you find with the people that you spent time with? Um, were they making it a decent wage um, or did it did it really vary widely?
3: It varied widely. And I think that one of the things that was most important is that it was hard to tell how much it would be, uh, you know, while you were in it. You know, Uber will shift its fares all the time and and like send you emails about like oh, if you drive this weekend, it'll be one rate. But if you want to drive today, it'll be much less. And so you get everybody kind of trying to game the system and understand how much they're going to make. Um, and they they don't really. And then there were people who were there are people who were making it work and look, work good, like the programmer who I followed. Uh, and then I guess there were people who were making it work, but it looked painful. Like um, I followed this woman who made a living on. Amazon Mechanical Turk. So a common task on Mechanical Turk is, you know, label these 10,000 pictures. Some of them are cats and some of them are dogs. Choose which label is which. So these are very small tasks uh, that are put out to a crowd of people that can do them for cents a piece. So this woman, her husband lost his job uh, at the height of the recession and she kind of you know, stepped up and said, okay, well, I need to figure out how to make more money quick. I know that I can just sign up for a Mechanical Turk right now, you know, without going to an interview or looking for a job or having to have experience. And she made $40,000 a year, like five cents at a time.
1: That's incredible. And
3: the way she did it was really smart. Like she would set up, um, you know, shortcuts on her keyboard. So like if the answer was cat, she would just have to press C and it would automatically select cat and submit it instead of, doing all the mouse clicks or she had like, you know, set up alarms on a forum where other workers were alerting each other to good jobs. So like if something were posted there, an alarm would go off and she'd be like, oh gosh, I got to go grab that. But she was working, you know, she was sleeping in her office in case like the alarm were to go off at night and working insane hours and getting, you know, repetitive stress injuries, but working through them because she couldn't afford to take a break and like not getting surgery because uh, she couldn't afford the prescriptions. Like, So, you know, you're like, okay, like this work was available instantly when she needed it, and maybe that's like a good thing, but like, I don't know that we can feel really good about that job opportunity.
1: Sarah Kessler, thank you so much for joining us. Your book, Gigged, is really good, and I recommend it to anyone who's interested in getting a deeper, fuller picture of what the gig economy looks like in practice. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw online this week. And now let's welcome back our guest co-host, Maya Kossoff. Maya, what tab could you not close this week?
2: So my tab this week comes from Wired. It's a story called Inside Palmer Luckey's Bid to Build a Border Wall. And as you'll recall, uh, Palmer Luckey, who left uh, Facebook and Oculus, um, at some point over the past year. He's he's a Trump supporter. He donated to the 2016 Trump campaign. He gave money to an alt-right super PAC uh, that funded anti-Hillary Clinton memes uh, in 2016. He is building a virtual uh, border wall. Uh, he, he's, uh, he wants his company, which is called Anduril, which is uh, another Lord of the Rings reference, like Palantir, to basically be a Lockheed Martin competitor. He wants it to be uh, a, a tech startup that combines VR uh, with surveillance Tools and basically allows the government to uh, surveil the the border between uh, the U.S. and Mexico without building a physical wall. All right. So Palmer
1: Luckey was, I, I believe, he was fired from Facebook, right? Or he like at least yeah. a- exited not under good terms. Was it partly because he was because of the the dank memes that he was posting on on Reddit? The <laughs> Donald. Is that do you remember?
2: <laughs> I think it was. I think it was part of it. I think he what he insinuates in this Wired uh, interview. Um, uh, with Stephen Levy is that he he had made some enemies at Facebook. And I think part of that had to have been ideological.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And so so now he's just he's going to embrace his his new identity as the, the pro Trump entrepreneur and build a virtual border wall. Did you get a sense of what that actually what that actually looks like? I mean, is this like putting VR cameras all along the border? Because that sounds sort of expensive and also not great if it rains.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that that the, the gist is basically that you're going to be able to to, you know, there there'll be VR elements to it and then there's also going to be like drones and cameras. And so in a lot of respects what he's uh propositioning here is is not like a lot different than other sort of proposals that we've heard in the past for a border wall tech. This one happens to be Palmer Lucky Brand. I think got a wired profile, but um, you know, it's it, and that might be a good selling point for the U.S. government. I don't know, but um, I, I guess we'll we'll see. Uh, I, I it's interesting to me that he's kind of embracing his iconoclasm and following in the footsteps of of people like say Peter Thiel. Um, there aren't many people like this in Silicon Valley who are, you know, openly, um, I wouldn't even call Teal, you know, he's, Teal certainly isn't, he, he's hard to put into an, he's into like a political box. He's pro-Trump. They're both pro-Trump. There's not many pro-Trump people openly pro-Trump people in in Silicon Valley. And these two have really just leaned all the way into it,
1: except for the part where, where Peter Thiel moved down to Southern California because he he couldn't bear <laughs> uh, uh, the, the political culture in Silicon Valley anymore. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Surveillance tech seems to really be the, the play if you're a, if you're a pro-Trump, uh, a pro-Trump entrepreneur.
2: Will, what was your tab this week?
1: My tab this week comes from journalists who were in Singapore this week covering the big nuclear summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Several of the journalists reported that they had been given a sort of swag bag uh, by the organizers of the summit. One of the items in there was a mini USB fan, a little fan that you plug into your USB for- port, and I guess your computer will power it and, I don't know, cool you off while you work. But there was a clear lesson here from like, all the security people on Twitter in unison screamed, do not put that in your USB port. Uh, and so, this is news you can use. if a, If a Foreign government or even our government, I would say, gives you a free thumb drive or any other device and and suggests that you plug it into your computer. Don't do that because it could have any number of of types of malware or or spyware or whatever else attached to it.
2: I think you're being kind of mean. I think that uh, you know I think a USB fan is a great gift uh, from any government, <laughs> and I would be I would be happy to have one.
1: You would rock that USB <laughs> fan.
2: I would yes, absolutely, any day.
1: I actually, I was on a trip to Singapore with some journalists and policy types a few years ago, and they did give us they they gave us a thumb drive actually, and and uh, I did not have security experts on Twitter to to tell me not to put it into my computer, but luckily for once I exercised a little common sense and and threw it in the trash.
2: You should have given it to a security researcher and seen what uh what if anything was lurking on there.
1: Now I know. That's that's the play. You give it to the security (laughs) researcher. Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It was a lot of fun, and your coverage at Vanity Fair is fantastic. I would urge everybody to go check it out.
2: Thank you so much, Will.
1: All right, that's our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at IfThen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me in April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest, Sarah Kessler. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah F. Kessler. And thanks to our guest co-host, Maya Kossoff. You can find her at M-E Kosoff, that's M-E-Kossoff. That's M-E-K-O-S-O-F-F. And if you like the show, please leave us a comment or a review on iTunes. We would be forever grateful. It really helps boost our show, and it's one of the few ways that we can get it out to new listeners to hear it. Thanks so much. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Shasha Leonard at Slate in Brooklyn. We'll see you next week.